that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. On the program, I talk with the co-creator and producer of My Brooklyn, a new film that explores the dramatic remaking of downtown Brooklyn along the lines of race and class, and how processes of redevelopment often threaten the very social fabric which makes places diverse, unique, and vibrant. Stay with us. This is an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Lots on the program. And welcome to the city here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and also syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's, as I mentioned, CJSF.ca. It's a real pleasure uh, to be with you. My name is Andy Longhurst. I'm going to be with you for the next hour. And on the program, uh, we're going to be talking with um, the co-creator and uh, producer of a recent uh, documentary film uh, called My Brooklyn. And... uh, over the course of the hour, um, talking with um, Allison um, Learstein, and she is um, uh, both uh, somebody who has a background in music, but also in urban planning. Uh, she's written extensively on issues um, around Brooklyn and urban issues, culture, um, politics, uh, an entire variety. Um, and over the hour, going to be hearing um, and talking to her about a number of the issues, about the film specifically, and about um, issues of redevelopment and race and class and how those play out um, with a particular example around um, uh, downtown Brooklyn, um, upon which the film is based upon. So we're going to start off with the trailer from My Brooklyn, and this gives you a bit of a sense of some of the issues um, that they bring forward in um, a beautifully crafted documentary film. And uh, if you want to check that out, um, I really encourage you to. That's mybrooklynmovie.com. And now the trailer, and then we're going to go into that conversation um, with Allison Irish, Lirish Dean. This is The City here on CATR 101.9 FM. When I picked up the camera, it was something magical about holding that instrument in my hand. I saw magic. This Brooklyn, the one of graffitied subway cars and stoop life, was the one I moved to in the 1980s. 
downtown Brooklyn was the nucleus. So there was just something special about that place. Just has that urban feel where you can dress how you want to dress, speak how you want to speak. Downtown Brooklyn is about to get a makeover to make it a vibrant 24-hour hub. How could the city go to sleep at night knowing that they're going to force this down the very group of people that live in the communities? I think it's a really weird space, and I don't know how to interact with it, and I think they should just make it go away. Now we are getting the area's first health food supermarket, which is going to serve everyone. A few years ago, you could not have attracted something like that to downtown Brooklyn. What was the impact of my presence in my neighborhood? Was the kind of change I kept seeing inevitable? You see how many people have moved out of here, though, Kelly? You see how all the stores are gone now? This block is completely abandoned now. If you don't like uh, wealthy people or successful profit-making businesses, you're not going to have a city. The Economic Development Corporation does more planning than the city planning department. There's no sunshine in these meetings. I don't feel like um, I was treated right. The process of gentrification in New York is not about people moving into a neighborhood and other people moving out of a neighborhood. The process of gentrification is about corporations and the idea that the city doesn't have a role in making sure that the collective aims of the people are actually achieved in development is obscene. And that's the trailer from the recent documentary film, My Brooklyn, actually screened uh, at the DOXA Documentary Film Festival um, earlier this uh, year in May here in Vancouver. And um, again, that website to check it out yourself um, and uh, you can uh, watch the trailer again. Um, it's not fully captured uh, just uh, in radio and in audio, but um, a very powerful film, and uh, check out uh, the trailer and more information about it at mybrooklynmovie.com. Um, but to really uh, give a bit of a definition and to frame uh, gentrification as something uh, that is actively produced, uh, in 2012 I spoke with um, a professor of urban geography at DePaul University, Winifred Curran, and uh, this is um, her speaking about how gentrification is something that is actively produced um, um, and is produced because there are profits to be made. And this uh, gives a nice sense of um, one uh, way that uh, gentrification is defined, um, and particularly in the context of this film, I think it's particularly uh, a useful definition to return to. This is not about demand from a particular consumer base, but that these spaces are being actively produced by you know, speculators, real estate developers, and urban governments um, in the search for profit and that following suburban and even ex-urban um, development, that the, the sort of new frontier of profitability, in the language of Neil Smith, who is the, the major proponent of this argument in his theory on the rent gap, um, is that the next frontier for profitability was the inner city because of how thorough disinvestment had been in the 60s and 70s. Can you talk? And that, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. 
So, and that's sort of the, the greatest profit potential um, is in inner city neighborhoods because that's where the gap between the actual land use and the potential ground, uh, ground use is greatest. Right. right? That's, so you can develop anywhere, you know, to develop um, a new suburban community or to develop in, uh, you know, an already, um, you know, well-established and well-regarded urban neighborhood, you can do that, but there's only so much profit you can make, right? You know, that's that market has been established. But if you are able to, you know, so-called rehabilitate an inner-city urban neighborhood and sort of create a market where none existed before, the profit potential there is enormous. And that that is what is driving gentrification, is the search for profit. Again, uh, Professor of Geography uh, Winifred Curran from DePaul University in Chicago. And now uh, my conversation with Allison uh, Lierstein, and she is um, the co-creator and producer, along with Kelly Anderson, of My Brooklyn. It's a film um, by them both, and um, over the next hour, we're going to hear a number of different issues about the film itself, um, the narrative to it, and the issues um, that they address uh, through it, um, particularly around um, the displacement of, of small uh, businesses and a, and a very vibrant um, and successful, um, largely African-American and, uh, and Caribbean um, uh, shopping district in downtown Brooklyn um, called Fulton um, Mall. Again, Allison Learish-Dean. What preceded the film was a research project that I did about Fulton Mall, which is a African-American and Caribbean shopping district in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I was a student in urban planning at the time, and I lived near the Fulton Mall, and I would pass by it very often and notice that it was extremely crowded and seemed like a really vibrant shopping area. Um, <clears throat> But I also noticed that all of the neighborhoods surrounding it were either gentrified or rapidly gentrifying. So Fulton Mall seemed like an island of resistance to gentrification. Um, and I was curious about what conditions were allowing that to be the case. I started to look at the Fulton Mall and just ask some really basic questions about it in an urban planning class that I was taking at the time not knowing that I would go on to actually do a film or anything, but just, you know, it was a topic I chose as a student. And what I found was that there were all these cultural, um, there was a lot of cultural significance to the mall. And, and by mall, I mean, there, it's an eight-block, Fulton Mall is an eight-block pedestrian strip in downtown Brooklyn um, that has been, closed off to traffic for the most part. Only buses can go through there. You can't go through there if you're just a regular car driving around the city. So it creates kind of an urban plaza-like atmosphere, and it's definitely distinct from the, the other streets in the surrounding area. Um, and it's called a mall because it's this kind of outdoor plaza space. It's not a mall in the, in the sort of more suburban sense of the word, of an enclosed building. Um, and lining the mall are various shops, and, you know, the side streets are included in that, and lining that area, you know, that street and, and the side streets connected to it are various stores that, um, for the most part at the time, which was in around 2004, 2005, catered to the African-American and Car Caribbean community. So I started researching um, 
what the space meant to people that used it and why it was popular and how it had managed to resist the gentrification that was going on all around it. Part of the reason I was curious about Fulton Mall is because it was clear that it was a very black space as opposed to the surrounding areas which were either mostly white or becoming white. And so there definitely was this racial distinction or, or there was segregation, I guess is how I saw it. There was this kind of island of commercial culture and social culture or whatever that, that was clearly catering to a black population, but everything around it was largely white. Although there is a very strong, although rapidly changing, black middle-class neighborhood just adjacent to Fulton Mall called Fort Greene, but um, that's sort of a little bit of a diversion, but just to be clear that, you know, it was somewhat of a nuanced situation, but for the most part, downtown Brooklyn was was catering to a working-class black and Caribbean population. And um, having grown up in South Carolina in the 1970s and 1980s, where there was, you know, still a, a very sharp um, degree of, seg- of racial segregation, I was also just curious about Mandy's patterns and race and how those two things overlapped with each other. So I kind of had a sensibility for this, um, you know, for, for, for exploring what was happening at Fulton Mall already. It, it kind of reminded me of, of some of the, the, I guess I would say the ways that neighborhoods were divided up in the South, um, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So I started this as a student, and then I got, I, I got asked by um, a nonprofit called the Pratt Center for Community Development, to actually conduct a more formal study for which I was paid. It was, you know, a a real job, so to speak. Um, And what they wanted me to do, I was actually, um, the work that I had been doing as a graduate student was in the urban planning department, but it was very anthropologically, methodologically speaking. It was very anthropological, I should say, methodologically speaking. And what that meant was that I was doing a certain kind of qualitative research that generally is not something that urban planners do a whole lot of, but because my urban planning program was pretty flexible, they let me take a lot of classes that were somewhat out of the realm of the core curriculum. So I've been doing some participant observation and some just straight-up ethnographic research. And so the Pratt Center, they were doing this big study because word had gotten out that downtown Brooklyn was going to be rezoned quite massively by the city of New York. And what that meant was that all of a sudden, instead of having six-story buildings, you could have, you know, giant skyscrapers that had no height limits or, you know, much different height limits than what had been there before. Um, There was, there was, uh, the rezoning was designed to, cur- to encourage more residential development in an area that had been primarily commercial. So the rezoning stood to have a significant impact on the downtown Brooklyn area, which had a, a very unique um, or ha- had a unique urban culture, had a unique cultural character. Can you talk about the process of zoning um, as a planner? It can have profound effects and um 
implications for a neighborhood and who is able to live there and stay there and afford to be there. Can you talk about that process of, of rezoning and upzoning? Yeah, yeah, I was just going to get into that. So um, what happened was the city of New York rezoned downtown Brooklyn, and they did not account for the question of who is this development going to benefit. So they rezoned it without requiring that any of the displaced affordable housing be replaced. They rezoned it without requiring that any of the small businesses. There were, there were about, there were over 100 small businesses were displaced by this rezoning, and that was something that was projected in the environmental impact statement. But the problem was the environmental impact statement deemed the businesses and residences that were going to be displaced under the rezoning as not having significant value either economically, socially, or culturally to downtown Brooklyn, which, of course, is just not at all the perspective that the local community has. Um, and not only that, but it, it ends up that the, the projections in the environmental impact statement that, that was submitted in conjunction with the downtown Brooklyn plan were extremely um, underestimated. So, in fact, um, you know, it said that 100 businesses were going to be displaced, but it exceeded that number. It, it said that 1,700 jobs were going to be lost because of displaced businesses, but in fact that number was much closer to 2,000 and probably higher than that because, because of some technicalities about the way that they define downtown Brooklyn. Um, and so in general, most of the things that, that the EIS projected, that the, the negative impacts were exceeded. Um, and were much more negative from the community's perspective than they were from the city's perspective. So that's one thing that happened. The other thing was that the, the rezoning was intended to generate more office space. Um, New York City is in a perpetual competition with New Jersey for back office jobs. So, like, you know, the, the kinds of back office functions that a lot of the big banks in New York, like J.P. Morgan Chase and so on, um, a lot of those jobs end up... Um, renting space in New Jersey because it's cheaper. So New York City has this thing about, you know, we have to make sure there's enough office space for these types of back office jobs so that we don't lose these jobs to New Jersey. So downtown Brooklyn was intended to be a back office, uh, you know, central business district. And what ended up happening instead of all this office space coming was that luxury condo development happened. Almost no office development happened. So mm -hmm. what the city, the way the city sold the plan was, oh, it's going to create 18,500 jobs, and so we're going to have so many thousands of, you know, millions of square feet of new office space. This is going to generate all these jobs for the local community. So, yes, there's going to be all this displacement, but for the most part, it's going to be outweighed by the benefits of the kinds of things that the rezoning is going to, going to allow and encourage. That didn't end up happening. Um, the rezoning was done just before the, the real estate bubble. Once developers, you know, really started selling off their properties in response to the to the increase in property values that the rezoning uh, triggered, what they realized was that the market, you know, was going in the direction of, of, of residential development. So that's what happened. And the city didn't put any provisions in place to ensure that that development was going to be distributed equitably. So we lost affordable housing, um, even though there was some very small, small, small amount of affordable housing 
created by um, the plan um, that was far outweighed by the, the amount of affordable housing that was demolished and, and you know, destro- destroyed. So, um, and, and, you know, again, the, 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 I don't remember the numbers exactly. It's in the movie. But so I think there were out of, there was just such a small proportion of new affordable housing built. So, um, and in addition to that, there was, you know, lots and lots of over 100, you know, over 100 small businesses were displaced and none of those businesses were given options to return to their previous spaces or to any new space that was going to be built in downtown Brooklyn. Um, even though the landlords in all these cases, the, the landlords that ended up displacing the small businesses, they had not said anything to these businesses until about a month before they were asked to leave. So there was no forewarning. These businesses were told, you have to get out within a month um, or else, you know, we'll lock your door and you'll be forcibly removed from the premises. I mean, that's really hard on a small business, especially, um, you know, ones that, I mean, it's, it's hard because it's difficult to afford to pack up all your stuff and store it while you find new space. And it's difficult to find new space in that amount of time. You end up losing your whole customer base because you don't have time to inform your customers of where you're going. I mean, there's lots of implications to that for small businesses. So um, the fact that they were not told until the last minute that they were going to be evicted, in fact, they were told that they would be given new space in the in the new development. And then that never happened. So there were just all kinds of really egregious <laughs> Um, <clears throat> activities going on around this that ended up really um, being unfair to a lot of people who, who had invested decades of their time and money into, you know, growing businesses in this area. So most of the small businesses were leasing from one landlord or multiple landlords? No, multiple landlords. Okay. Um, there, this is a very large commercial district. I mean, the Fulton Street Mall is an eight-block strip in the center of this district, and then surrounding that eight-block strip, there are many, many large buildings um, <clears throat> that, you know, had small businesses in them. And there were there were at least two separate landlords that were primarily responsible for the vast majority of small business displacement, but there were others as well that contributed to that. So all in all, it was a handful of local landlords that were, you know, that ran, that run national if not international um, development, you know, companies. And <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, we documented all, all this in the film, how these businesses were not told what was going on. They were not deemed to have any value to the city. But the other side of that story is that wasn't being acknowledged by the city and that wasn't being um, accounted for in this rezoning is that, number one, Downtown Brooklyn Fulton Mall is one of the most economically profitable shopping districts in the entire city, despite its image as being a rundown, um, you know, perhaps blighted shopping area that appeals to low-income shoppers. It's actually, um, and that is true that it does that it did have appeal to low-income shoppers for various reasons, but it's also true that it was the third most profitable shopping district in all of New York City, just behind Fifth Avenue and Madison Avenue in Manhattan. I'm sure that your listeners have heard of Fifth Avenue and, and Madison Avenue, right? These are some of the most expensive um, upscale shopping streets in the entire world. Um, so that's quite 
a dramatic statistic. And then, um, so it's not as if the area was failing or as if the, the, the businesses were not able to pay their rents. On the contrary, they were paying very, very high rents, some of the highest commercial rents in all of Brooklyn, if not the city. So, Is there commercial rent um, control in New York? No, no, there's not. There's no rent control um, of any commercial properties in New York. And that's one of the things that is some people are advocating for simply because there's been this total assault on small businesses over the past, you know, under the Bloomberg administration, there's been a very large amount of small business displacement throughout the city. It's been a huge issue. And what it's doing, apart from favoring large corporate tenants, is it is erasing a lot of the local character of the city. So now many shopping districts that used to be unique and have a distinct cultural and, and social character now look like anywhere any shopping district in any other city. Um, and so that's, in, in a lot of estimations, that's not only just bad um, for, the, for the residents because people want to have a neighborhood that has a character, but it's also economically bad because the uniqueness of New York and its history and its, and its multicultural um, character are what attracts a lot of people to the city, not just to live there, but also tourists. So, you know, that's sort of a little bit of, of a diversion. But um, what I was going to say, apart from the fact that Fulton Mall was economically successful, was that if you talked to anybody who was shopping there or working there or frequenting downtown Brooklyn prior to the rezoning, and this is what I did for my ethnographic study, is, you know, a whole lot of interviews with people about this, you find that there's this whole different perspective on Fulton Mall that you're, you know, that you weren't hearing in the press, you weren't hearing from the city, that people really valued Fulton Mall downtown Brooklyn because, for one thing, it had... Um, the kinds of products that were catering to them, things people wanted to buy. The price point was was right. Um, and the the local uh, shoppers there had relationships with a lot of the business owners, so if something was not affordable to them in that moment, they could negotiate, they could bargain, they could put things on layaway, they could, you know, get an extension of credit. or You know, there were various things that allow people to afford shopping there. So we talked to one woman, for example, who um, was living in public housing, you know, right near the downtown Brooklyn Fulton Mall area, and she had a relationship with a local pharmacy where she could go in, and if she couldn't afford to get her prescription that month, he would give it to her, and she could pay him later. Mm. Um, you know, there were, there were lots of relationships like that. Um, and then um, there was the cultural significance of the area to a lot of people. So downtown Brooklyn was um, a place where a lot of hip-hop culture emerged, and um, a lot of songs came out of that area. A lot of artists went down there and, you know, hung out there, met with each other, um, actually, you know, sort of created music on the street, uh, just hanging out there. Um, the Beastie Boys, Jay-Z, um, uh, Big Daddy Kane. I mean, there, you know, there are a lot of artists that went down there. Bismarcky. And so it was a kind of hip-hop fashion and, and music mecca. So it was all very synergistic. You know, people would go there. There was the fashion that was emerging um, that was associated with hip-hop. 
there, it was a place where people would kind of strut around on the street and display, you know, whatever fashions they were wearing, what was, what was in at the time. And that was a social experience that a lot of people really relished and were connected to. And, and so, and there was a certain kind of, I think, just street culture there that, that a lot of people felt, you know, close to and were, were involved in. Um, which you don't so see, I, I you don't see of, in places like Park Slope, <laughs> which. Right, I, exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I think that, you know, New York City since 9-11 has actually become, there's a lot of control exerted on the streets. Like, you'll often go around and find, like, just barricades on a street and there's no, or on a sidewalk, and there's no, like, obvious reason why that is. Um, or you'll be asked to not do certain things in a public space, or you'll, you can just tell that certain public spaces are very heavily surveilled. In fact, um, there's a public space right next to Fulton Mall called Metro Tech that's pretty heavily, that's pretty heavily um, surveilled. And so one of the th- great things about Fulton Mall is it didn't seem to have that type of um, social control being exerted on the street. So there was a lot of things happening. Um, you know, there were some street vendors that would sell things, um, although that was had been cracked down on quite a lot during the Giuliani administration. But still, you know, there was still some of that going on. So, um, and then a lot of people had memories and, and attachments to the place because they had been going there for generations. So they had memories of, like, my grandfather, my grandmother, you know, would take me shopping here, or my grandmother actually worked in this store, and now I'm working here. Or, um, you know, this is where we would go for back-to-school shopping. This is, this is a, a community space where we would go to shop, but we would also run into a lot of people we knew, um, you know, friends and family. There's all kinds of social experiences that people had down there that, that kind of cemented their attachment to the mall, and that, that persists to this day. So that you, hear, you hear a lot of people say, you know, I come here because my, my mother and grandmother came here, and <clears throat> The other interesting thing is that it's not just a local shopping area. It's actually a pretty regional shopping area. So you hear a lot of people say that they come there from Harlem or from other parts of New York City or even from Westchester County. We even talked to one woman who was an immigrant from Jamaica who told us, I actually heard about the Fulton Mall before I ever even came to the United States. People in Jamaica knew about it before I was ever even, you know, I ever even emigrated here. So Mm -hmm. we thought that was pretty amazing. And you hear a lot of things like that. So it's quite a famous space for African-American and black culture, um, for the fashion, for the music, for, the, you know, just the culture that's there. So, um, and, you know, a lot of people told me that they thought of it as a, land, a landmark. And so it's a very different concept of historic preservation and a very different concept of what kinds of things should cities consider preserving and protecting than the older concept of like, well, there's a few architecturally significant buildings here, um, you know, stuff like that. And what, what New York City really failed to do was understand who the space um, was important to. The city failed to understand who was valuing the space, who was using the space, who was dependent on the space, um, both economically and socially um, what kinds of cultural significance the space had for people, 
those things just weren't at all considered when the rezoning was done, and so it ended up destroying a lot of a lot of things that were valuable to people, and it ended up displacing a lot of people. So there were economic consequences, there were social consequences, there were cultural consequences, and and it didn't, you know, it didn't have to be that way.
And welcome back. You're listening to The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and we're syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and also as a podcast uh, available at thecityfm.org. And I'm Andy Longhurst, and on the program today, we're hearing from Allison Learish-Dean, and she is uh, one of the, she is the producer of... Um, uh, a film called My Brooklyn. It's a it's a documentary about Brooklyn and about uh, redevelopment and urban change and um, how this occurs along the lines of race and class. Um, and so we're going to continue the second part of that conversation, uh, particularly uh, focused in on uh, the issue of race and class and how that gets articulated and how there are struggles um, over um, how that is um, part um, of of the debate or part of the discussion about redevelopment um, and how it's often obscured um, by certain redevelopment uh, aims um, by the city and by uh, developers in cities. So in that second part, uh, coming right up, we're going to take a quick uh, break, uh, but stay with us. This is The City, here Tuesdays, 5 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM and syndicated uh, Fridays 10 to 11 a.m. on CJSF. Thanks for being with me. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. band playing on and on and on gosh so loud man i wish we had a safe place to play music yeah and shows too the safe amplification site society is a non-profit group dedicated to establishing a legal affordable all-ages venue for music and arts in vancouver for more information or to get involved check out www.safeamp.org I want to talk and shift the discussion a bit about these conflicting ideas or visions or ideologies about what space is for and who's it f- and who it's for. Um, you, you have a great um, moment where a white guy in, I think it's Park Slope, is interviewed at a farmer's market, a largely white space. Um, and he mm-hmm. says, I, I don't know how to engage with Fulton Mall. I think it should just go away. Right. And right. I, I, I think... If, if I had to characterize one of the most profound moments in that movie, that's the moment um, because it it, really? just, it just shows how white middle class people um, really don't get it. <laughs> and I right, think, right, right, yeah. and I think this is something that we see all across cities um, where middle class white middle class sensibilities or aesthetics um, are often driving some of these changes or justifying what planning de- departments and developers are are pushing through because they feel like they're not welcome there and they should have a right to be in every space and have their values and their aesthetic preferences represented. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a sense among a lot of particularly white... It, there, there's a class... Sorry, I should stop interrupting myself. There's both a class and a race component here. 
there definitely is a way in which white people in particular, white middle, upper middle class people, feel like if they don't like a space, then it, then it must just not be a very good space. And so I, to be fair, I think there is this assumption that if, if this place is redeveloped according to what we think would be attractive and, you know, desirable, then it'll be a better space for everybody. Mm-hmm. I think they see their, their views and their aesthetics as a stand-in for kind of just generally what's good for everyone. Mm-hmm. I don't have, like, total evidence for that, but I am a white middle-class, upper-middle-class person, and I feel like I can say this because, you know, I, I'm sure I've felt that myself. Mm-hmm. And I, I had to examine my own feelings. I mean, this was a whole process for me as well of, you know, examining myself and my views and my, my, um, my role in this, basically. And I, I think that's what Kelly's character in the film really does, is it says, look, you know, I know that I'm part of the problem, and I want to understand why that is, how that is, and what I can do about it. So I do think that, that that's true, what you're saying. Um, I also think, though, that there's a class lens on this whole thing where, for the most part, yes, it is white people's aesthetic, but in New York, there is also um, an upper class, you know, middle class, upper middle class uh, black population, which is rapidly, um, well, I shouldn't say rapidly. I should say that there are neighborhoods adjacent to downtown Brooklyn that are that are black and more wealthy. You know, they don't represent the kind of demographic of Fulton Mall, which is more of a working class uh, demographic. And those people also don't shop at Fulton Mall. They didn't feel the need to trash Fulton Mall in the same way that a lot of white people from a similar economic background did in the film, but at the same time, they don't shop there. And they probably in some ways would like to see a change as well. Um, so the pressure is coming from, you know, a number of different angles. Of course, there are lots of cities like Portland, where I live, that don't really have a strong black middle class. And so what you're saying is a lot more true here that, you know, there isn't, there just isn't a black middle class to kind of provide a bridge between those extremes, I guess. Um, you know, a lot of the black, of black middle class people that we talk to, um, or upper middle class people we talk to at that farmer's market, and we, we put one of them in the film, said, you know, I don't really shop there. There's nothing really there for me, but, um, but I don't want to see it destroyed. Mm-hmm. Because they understood that even though it was not, from a class perspective, a space that they would want to shop in, they did understand. I think they had a little bit more of a sensitivity to the racial politics of space and what it meant to just kind of go in and wholesale redevelop Fulton Mall. Some of it also is an age-based thing because Fulton Mall tended to cater a bit more to youth culture, you know, that being part of its hip-hop aesthetic. And so I do think there were some people from older generation that felt a little left out, and that's kind of a different issue. But, um, but yeah, so I think that they don't get it. I will say that in that, you know, the upper middle class, middle class white people often don't get it. But that clip that you mentioned with that guy, I, mean, I don't know if you're going to play it on the radio, but <laughs> he does kind of have a, a revelation in, in the middle of that clip. He says all that stuff about, oh, you know, I don't shop there. I think the city should just make it go away. I don't really understand. I don't interact with it. And he says, but, you know, 
maybe it's a race thing because it seems like people do shop there and you know there might be things for African Americans. So he does kind of have this self reflective moment, which I think is is great. And you know, that's what we wanted the film to do to get people to stop and think, okay, wait a minute. No, here's what my perception of this space has been all along. I haven't really liked it. I thought that it was kind of run down and not very valuable. But, you know, maybe I should think twice about that because, I mean, that guy I happen to know and many people we talk to are really pretty progressive in many ways. And so there are people, it's amazing actually how many people there are who are progressive in so many ways but, like, really don't get this issue. I have a friend who... came to see the film. He's highly educated um, journalist, very progressive individual, and he actually said to me after the film, well, like, I don't really understand, you know, why this particular set of people was the focus of your film, because, you know, there were a lot of other people who lived in, who lived and worked or shopped in that space before, and they got displaced, and I was like, you know, listen, the whole point of the film was that for African Americans, this whole process of taking space is a very different thing. I mean, the white people that were at Fulton Mall before, you know, in the 20s and 30s, um, they left voluntarily. They got out because the city was declining due to redlining, and they didn't want their they didn't want to be part of that. So they were able to go and you know be incentivized by the government to buy all these houses in the suburbs. That's a very different situation than being trapped in a city that falling apart because, you know, you have no other, no other being, option. Yeah. Yeah. So he somehow didn't quite get it. And I would, you know, I was like, I don't know if that was a fault of the film or if he just felt defensive because the film brought up issues for him or, but you know, it's interesting how many people, it, it takes a few kind of spirals of, of, of self-reflection to, for a lot of this stuff to sink in. And, that's honestly why we're, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if you know about the campaign we're doing in New York right now, but we um, basically are allowing people in New York City to view the film for free during the month of July. This is going on right now. Um, and so people are scheduling house parties around the film where they invite people to come and view the film, and we created this whole facilitation guide where um, it helps people, you know, guides people to talk through the issues that the film raises. It's a very structured conversation if that's what you want. And um, so we have, like, at least 40 house parties throughout the city that are happening this month. Mm, wonderful. And, you know, the, yeah, there's a there's a mayoral election coming up in September. So part of the goal, we, we worked with about five or six community organizations in, in New York City to put together this initiative to design the facilitation guide to write it. Um, and so it was definitely like an effort, you know, among people that are really thinking really hard about this issue of, okay, there's a, there's a election coming up. What kinds of issues relating to land use do we really want people to think about and talk about? And um, what kind of a land use platform do you want the next mayor to have? Um, and how should it be different from what Bloomberg did? And so the house parties are really designed to get people thinking about those issues and talking about them and hopefully engaging in some aspect of, of land use policy do you think um, it's, leading up to the election. 
for me, zoning and land use, and I, I live in a neighborhood in Vancouver that is actually in the middle of a community planning process, and um, the draft plan was released by the city, and um, land use specifically was never discussed, um, just in vague generalities, and the draft plan was released back to the community, um, a primarily and historically a working class um, it's been, you know, the center of leftist politics in the city, but a low, predominantly low rise. What neighborhood is this? Uh, it's called Grandview Woodland. Okay. And uh, it's in East Vancouver. And uh, this draft plan was released and people were shocked because there were proposals for 36 story towers uh, in a neighborhood mm -hmm. of primarily, you know, four to four to six story buildings. Um and, and single family homes with lots of suites on them and, and affordable, um, somewhat affordable rental housing as, although as things gentrify, it's increasingly more expensive than it was even, you know, five years ago. But I think yeah. the point being this very issue of land use and zoning is often even hard for um, me to engage with, with people my age that live in the neighborhood uh, who yeah. sometimes these things are so abstract, but when you, when you upzone a neighborhood, you're changing the very nature and who has an ability to afford to live in that neighborhood. So I'm just wondering, it is you know how do it sounds like you're trying to get people to have a discussion about things like land use that have such profound implications, but in some ways there's such a um, it's such a kind of um, you know it's a hard hard thing to talk about because it can be kind of uh, very very abstract in a sense. Yeah, it's yeah, it's kind of arcane for people. It's true. I I think it's. I mean, the first challenge is just knowing what's even going on, right? Which in a city like New York can be really difficult because there's a lot of layers to the planning process. There's a lot of different agencies. A lot of the information is not, you know, provided, um, or if it is, it's hidden, or it's not something people would necessarily be able to access. So I think, I think there's that issue of knowing what's going on and then, and then understanding it. You know, even if you know what's going on, you might not understand it. You might, might not understand the implications of it. So something like zoning is a good example because zoning just sounds extremely benign or, or technical to people. Um, so they don't really understand how powerful it is, um, you know, what, how, 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 much it can just really transform a neighborhood. I mean, of course, there are other factors. You can't, just because you rezone doesn't mean anything's going to change. But under the right circumstances, you know, a lot can change. And, and downtown Brooklyn has really, really changed. I mean, the, the, the transformation of downtown Brooklyn has been very rapid. It's almost a completely different space than it was, you know, back in 2006. Um, I was just there in June, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was like, wow, this is, you know, they really, really accomplished this. And it, I think it's abstract partly because even if people see renderings of what's going to happen, it's just that's not what's there now. And it, it's a big mental leap to think that people are going to actually be able to get from, you know, this low-rise community to something that's, you know, got a bunch of skyscrapers in it. So I think there's a number of psychological and mental obstacles that have to be overcome, mm -hmm. which is why I think that... Um, you know, tools, the more tools we can create that help bridge people's understanding um, of people, you know, what pe where people are with what's actually happening, I think is, is good. And hopefully the film 
has been, you know, has contributed to that just a little bit. I do think it's opened some people's eyes to, you know, what the city is doing and what what it all means and what the implications of it are. I think there are also a lot of other really interesting people working on things. Um, there's something called the Center for Urban Pedagogy in Brooklyn that um, the people that work there make um, all kinds of tools to help people visualize planning, to help them understand it, to help, to help you know, them simplify things that um, are often just presented in a way that's way too complicated for them to grasp. So, <clears throat> um, but I do think it's, it's important that people understand this stuff because it relates to so many other aspects of their lives. It, it relates to where they live. It relates to where they work. It relates to how much they get paid um, <clears throat> at their jobs. It relates to whether they can, you know, root themselves in a community and stay there and expect to stay there or whether they can expect to be constantly moving around and being uprooted. Um, it relates to, you know, just any anything you want to, name that relates to a person's everyday life, um, you know, do you, it's, it's, uh, it's significant. Yeah. As a, as a planner, do you think planning as a profession and perhaps even as a discipline is, <clears throat> is in crisis? Um, we see increasingly that developers and corporations, and mm -hmm. you talk about the New York City Economic Development Council or the wing of, of the city, <laughs> right. which does more planning than the planning department as one of your... Um, interviewees uh -huh. uh, says are we at a crisis here yeah. where planning is unable to address some of these issues and really challenge neoliberal um essentially the the movement of the market to dictate everything that goes on in cities and and leave things like housing and land use and businesses to the vagaries of the market yeah well what i would say first of all just as a comment to what you just said is that um, actually what happened in downtown Brooklyn was very much not, I mean, the market was part of it, but it was a very active government um, intervention in, in the planning process. So um, it was definitely not the market. And that's what people often think. Um, and so they justify, oh, well, that's just what the market is doing, right? These businesses weren't competitive anymore, so they got they got displaced. Yeah. That is not at all what happened. The city created, um, sort of really changed the, the land value overnight. And so mm -hmm. as we saw in the film, you know, this was, this was a very much a collaboration between government and the private sector. So what happened in downtown Brooklyn was that government changed policy to allow for different kind of development to happen there. But mostly what, that was, what those policy changes were, were designed to do was just allow the private sector to come in and develop whatever it wants. So the city made the changes. The private sector got to decide what actually got developed. And that's what I think is the worst-case scenario because oftentimes a, market, a pure market-based scenario is much better. I mean, if the market had been allowed to just function in downtown Brooklyn without all these you know, changes coming in, it was doing fine. You know, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, I'm not an advocate, I'm not a libertarian, I'm not, I don't believe in pure market forces. So don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I believe we should all just like, you know, believe in the market. But at the same time, I think it's important for people to be clear that neoliberalism is in part this kind of public-private thing. Mm -hmm. It can be very confusing for people because 
it's like where you know where's the accountability if it's private you know that's pretty difficult when it comes to accountability but then there's this whole public component to it so you know it is really really dicey and so as far as um, whether it's a, it's in crisis I think that the planning profession itself is no more in crisis than it was like when Jane Jacobs wrote you know the life and death of the death and life I always forget the order, but that, the death and life of great American <laughs> cities, right? I always, I don't think it's anymore. I mean, you know, if you read the beginning of her book, she says, you know, urban planning is, I can't remember the exact sentence, but she says, urban planners are, you know, completely on the wrong track, and here's why. And, um, and so, but I think what's different is, and it's not, it's not really the planning profession per se, but what it is is that corporations just have way too much power. And it's affecting every aspect of our lives. Um, it's, affecting the, it's, it's affecting the planning profession for sure because what a lot of planners do is they just facilitate private investment. And that's not always a good thing because they don't think about equity. They don't figure out how to, you know, use policy in a creative way to ensure that benefits of new developments are distributed equitably. Um, so it's affecting the planning profession in that way, but I would, I would put the finger on the real problem, which is the out-of-control nature of corporate power. Um, you know, a lot of the corporate developers in downtown Brooklyn, they got huge tax breaks for developing in a hot real estate market. There's all kinds of examples all over the place of corporations, you know, big, huge corporations paying minuscule, if, if any, taxes. So what does this do? This totally decimates the public sector. It, um, it allows them to, you know, make huge profits without giving anything back to the communities that they're doing business in and that they're having an impact on. It um, often creates a situation where they're allowed to come in and, you know, developers are allowed to come in and develop, but there's no provision for living wage jobs. There's no provision that anybody local is going to get those jobs. The jobs have no benefits. So, you know, in City Point and downtown Brooklyn, which is featured in the film, it's a new development that replaced the Albee Square Mall. You had, I can't, there were something like 715 businesses, um, jobs, sorry, it, it, you know, in the mall, um, you know, those jobs were replaced by retail that's going to be paying a poverty wage. Um, so, I mean, I don't see how that's really helping the city. To You know, you come in, you destroy a whole bunch of jobs in affordable housing and replace it with jobs that are not going to pay people enough to live, live you know, to afford to live in New York City. So that's the problem of corporate power. And I think where planning comes in is to organize people, to, number one, be educated about what's going on, to understand that, that it doesn't have to be this way, and to fight for alternatives. That's a really uphill battle. I mean, you know, I, I'm not going to say that we're necessarily winning, winning it right now as a, as a country, um, but I do think there are small wins here and there, and over time, you know, those things add up and eventually you know, hopefully this way of structuring our country will be overturned. But, you know, that's a, a huge topic, and I, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> um, but I think that I think that it's definitely some, something that the planning profession can play a, a role in.